Support for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at maineboats.com. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Support for Boat Talk made possible in part by Gamble & Hunter Sailmakers, making sales for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main windjammers for 30 years. Near the harbor in Camden, campbellandhunter.net. Good morning, good morning. It's uh, the second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock in the morning, and it's time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor, and around the world at WERU.org. Boat Talk is a call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your hosts, and Rusty Anchors, Mike Joyce, and Alan Sprague. Boat Talk is a uh, a uh, navally oriented show that gets uh, scores of in the uh, in the high seas. <laughs> <laughs> Sad to think we'll never be better than seas. Sea students, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we have a special guest here today. I'm going to let Mike introduce our our guest. Uh, Giffy arranged this actually, and I, I was very happy that uh, Giffy called my good friend Pam Scott from the Windward Passage organization, and, and Pam is sitting here this morning classing the place up a little bit. And we do uh, boat talk. Uh, About time you gave this place some class. Yeah, well, Giffy, that's why we brought you as well. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, Giffy uh, full uh, sitting at the other end of the table from me, of course, being the senior member of the boat talk crew when he's uh, here in season. He uh, graces us. With his experience, Giffy, probably uh, one of the most experienced boat surveyors on the planet, I would say, and uh, still in demand and finding it hard to say no to people still, aren't you, Giffy? I'm still saying no. Well, <laughs> you work at it, but it's not, al- it's not always possible, is it? I'm about 99%. Yeah. Well, but the 1%, it's good to keep interested and busy a little bit, but not, not let it run you. I run from them. Yeah, good for you. So anyway, Boat Talk, uh, second Tuesday every month, uh, we kind of run it uh, kind of loose. Uh, other people open the phone lines at certain times. The phone lines are always open at Boat Talk. Well, speaking of phone lines, um, you regular listeners of you probably realize that we are in the middle of our pledge drive right now. So I'll give you a phone number if you would like to call in right now and show your particular support for Boat Talk. That would be great. The uh, pledge line is one 800 but if you would like to talk with the boat talk guys and uh, discuss anything naval that you are contemplating the call-in number is 1-866-625-9378 we always do a few marine news items to get the show going here clip things from the paper as the month goes on read this and that and and uh we 
Got to mention a couple of things here. Last uh, month, we talked about the Fife Yacht Reunion they had down in Camden. A fellow named Bob Scott helped. Uh, Castine? Castine. Uh, Castine, that Castine. was. <laughs> yes, sorry, Pam. One of those sea harbors. Uh, <laughs> Pam's other half, Bob Scott, was uh, one of the organizers of that, and uh, they rendezvoused uh, half a dozen classic Fife yachts, including Adventurous, brand new, re- rebuilt at uh, Rockport Marine. It was at the Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors show this this weekend at the end of the dock, and if you saw that, it's almost too hard to imagine how pretty and nice and shiny and, and classic that thing is. It's just uh, teak city and, and uh, varnish everywhere on deck, uh, just exquisite uh, joinery and, and the deck houses, and uh, it's a uh, gaff, schoon- gaff topsail schooner. Yeah. From around uh, 1903, uh, somewhere around there, early 1900s. Over 100 years old. Just absolutely incredible. And the job they did at Rockport Marine rebuilding that, absolutely phenomenal. I was uh, standing with Taylor Allen on the dock the other day and uh, asking him, what did you have to start with? I mean, this, uh, all these uh, beautiful... The beautiful deck houses and, and the whole deck, you know, nope, I didn't have much there at all. <laughs> is this as, as original? Oh, we made a few improvements, he says. And uh, this is a personal watercraft for, a, you know, it's just a regular fellow that owns, regular fellow in quotation marks, that owns this, this uh, average yacht and plans to be in the Caribbean this winter. Is about all we know about how that will be used. Just absolutely phenomenal work. And uh, good part of the trade down east here. And speaking of Taylor Allen, we also talked to him last last month about uh, their new place in Belfast there, the uh, Front Street Shipyard, has now acquired the next-door boatyard, the Belfast boatyard, and they're going to expand. That gives them about 500 more feet of deep-water frontage, 22 more boat slips, uh, two dozen moorings, and uh, six acres of off-site storage. They're going to be renovating all the buildings. And uh, the Front Street Shipyard is going for it down there. Businesses, uh, you know, they're, they're courting uh, large yachts from away that don't generally come here, uh, even to cruise, let alone for their service. There's a big market there. Yeah, it's, it's incredible what they've done in a year. Yeah. Here's another pretty cute one. Uh, we talked about the uh, eel fishery here this spring. And... Uh, you have to realize that these eels, uh, the glass eels, they, they what, uh, come from the Sargasso Sea somewhere off towards Bermuda, and they uh, swim and swim and swim, and they come ashore in rivers and streams all up and down the East Coast in the springtime. And in Maine and South Carolina are the only places that fish for them. And in Maine here, the price of glass eels this last spring was over $2,000 a pound. There are 400 licensed eel fishermen in the state of Maine. There were probably much more than 400 unlicensed eel fishermen trying to yeah. get a few of them pounds, okay? The wardens were working overtime. Oh, it was, it was phenomenal. And uh, just for example, on the first night of the fishery, on the first tide in Ellsworth, Maine, a half a million dollars exchange hands from the buyers to the, to the sellers. It's a cash fishery. Think of a half a million dollars cash coming to your town on a, on a spring <laughs> night. Um, so here's, here's the punchline. The Animal Planet on the uh, cable TV, they're going to turn this into a TV show next year, and they're going to film in Maine and South Carolina, the only two places that license people huh. to, to catch these. And guess what they're going to call it? Eel of Fortune. <laughs> Eel of Fortune. <laughs> <laughs> that's got to be pr- that's that's going to have to be uh, right up there with the main uh, uh, logging uh, series that they do. 
the Pelletier, Pelletier brothers, I guess. Uh, they got some uh, main, main uh, not on the animal planet discovery, I guess, for those guys. But anyway, we are doing boat talk this morning. We got Pam Scott in here from uh, Windward Passage, uh, Giffy Fulm, Mike Joyce, Alan Sprague. The here. phone number, if, uh, if uh, you want to give a call to pledge this morning. The pledge number is one 800 Six four three six two seven three, and uh, for those of you folks who are maybe listening to this as a podcast, you can still use that number one eight hundred six four three six two seven three. Just on give the us com- a call on the computer too. Uh, Weru dot org. That's right. I believe it's all secure as things can be. And, um, <clears throat> off you go. We got to talk about lobsters too. That was one of the things we uh, been wanting to uh, make a show about the lobster fishery here this summer. And uh, maybe next month we'll, we'll uh, hopefully get to it. So much stuff to talk about on Boat Talk. But the lobster fishery is huge in the news right now. And uh, mostly because there's too many lobsters and they don't cost enough money for the lobster fishermen. And uh, here's a little background of it. In the, up until about the 1990s, in Maine, we landed about 20 million pounds of lobster every year. Um, it's been going steadily up since the 90s. The record was last year they landed 105 million pounds more than five times as much lobsters as, as we were doing 20 years ago. Um, that is uh, caught in two to three million traps that are, could be in the, lo- in the water at any one time to dodge with your boat. And, and for the whales to dodge, too. Well, that the point is that they fish a lot more gear, pure and simple. Yes, they do. Uh, the fishermen took home about $334 million last year, which is, again, not insignificant money in your little town on the coast of Maine. Um, there's about uh, 5,000 lobster licenses in the state of Maine, but that's not counting the stern, stern men, the dealers, the processors, the boat people, everybody else, the, uh, the people at the uh, variety store, you know, where they buy ring dings and, mm-hmm. and uh, soda. Gas you know, pumps. Gas pumps, everybody. It's, uh, there's a lot going on in the lobster fishery there. But there's uh, something going on this year where the uh, shedders, every year a lobster has to shed its, its uh, uh, carapace there and grow a new shell as part of their uh, part of their growth. They do that at a certain part of the year and it's uh, in large part temperature yeah, driven. The water's a lot warmer. That's a the lot point, Giffy. Than it's been. That's yeah. It. So the shedders have come on really early this year. They're catching them by the bucket load, but the price is way down. Now shedders are my favorite lobster to eat. They're the best tasting ones, I think. I love love the uh, shedders. Easy to get into, too. You got to you got to count that in. But uh, they don't travel easily. They cry, they uh, spoil. They if you they're uh, easily damaged. Yes. Yeah. If you dent a lobster, it's pretty much uh, dead. And, and then the pounds have had so so much lobster, they they can't take anymore. Yep. And uh, if you've noticed in the news, you've seen uh, a lot of uh, upset fishermen in New Brunswick, Canada, right next door here, blocking Maine tractor trailer trucks bringing Maine lobster to. The processing plants, which just happened to be located in, no- in Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and, and New Brunswick. Um, in New Brunswick, for instance, there's about a dozen lobster processing plants. In Maine, there's two. And, and almost... Uh, uh, the mo- big one that was going that opened didn't last very long. No. And, uh, oh, they uh, just started up something down in Prospect Harbor there at the old... Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure how that's going. I know the money went sideways, I believe, but I'm not sure what's happening down there. So anyway, the uh, Canadian lobster fishermen have different seasons, and uh, in south- southeastern New Brunswick, adjacent to us here, the lobster season is going to start right now. 
and it's going to be for the next two months. Those lobster fishermen have a union. They get unemployment. Hmm. The socialists. Oh, the socialists. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, they are being uh, promised right now, uh, it looked to them that they were going to get what Maine lobstermen are getting for their lobsters, 2 to two fifty a pound off the boat. And for the price of fuel and all your overhead and stuff, that's not a good way to make a living. And uh, you're getting to the point where, where it hurts there. And the uh, New Brunswick lobster uh, people have got together and they've made an agreement with the union and the processors. The union and the processors are both going to kick in uh, 25 to 50 extra cents a pound in the short term here for this season. And they're promising the New Brunswick lobstermen when they start, uh, again, their season starts right now, 3 to 3.50 a pound as opposed to what the Maine lobstermen are getting. They're going to be subsidized. And uh, Maine lobster is still moving down to New Brunswick. But again, uh, what the heck's going on? Why are there more soft shells uh, so early? Uh, you know, it's like Giffy says, the water's warming up. Things are changing. How about the uh, future of this fishery? Yeah, is it all going to go north? Well, well some people question. will get washed out. Another yeah. interesting thing in the lobster fishery we hope to talk about uh, if we uh, touch it next year will be the uh, uh, next month will be uh, how you get into the lobster fishery. It's uh, not that easy to enter, you know. And uh, maybe we're going to have to start adjusting that. People who uh, even should be in the lobster fishery have a hard time getting into it. I got to uh, throw this in, too, before we get to Pam Scott and Windward Passage here. This is just a, a great little book that uh saw at the library a little while ago. And uh, it is called How to Catch a Lobster in Down East Maine. Now, there's lobster, lots of lobster books around there you can find in gift shops. This one I'd highly, highly recommend written by Christina Lemieux Oragano, and uh, she grew up in Cutler in a fishing family. And uh, she is now in London in advertising, and that is a pretty interesting story how she got here. This book is, I think, just about perfect. Uh, this girl wrote about uh, the people that she knows and the life that uh, you know she's been living, and it includes history. It includes, my favorite part is here, is the uh, written and unwritten rules of the lobster fishery because there are two kinds of rules there. And the unwritten rules are, uh, in large part, uh, run the fishery, you would have to say. The, so the social side of it is huge in this book here. So anyway, it's extraordinarily well done. I highly recommend it. How to Catch a Lobster in Down East Maine, Christina Lemieux or uh, Lemieux Oragano. And uh, here's a pretty cool little story for you. <laughs> Um, the uh, connections that can be made. Now, you have to think of Cutler, Maine. Giffy, you've been in and out of Cutler, haven't you? Oh, yeah. By water. Times. Yeah. It's a pretty cool destination for yachts that, that dare to go past, past uh, down east. It's uh, weird to go into at night, too, especially with all the, the lights from the Navy station there and everything. It's... It's like kind of like landing on Mars. There's not much in Cutler either. There's no store in Cutler, for instance. There's no services in no. Cutler. Um, the lobstermen don't even have a place to get together. They hang out in one fellow's <clears throat> basement. They call it the bilge. They've got a barber's chair. sits in the middle of the uh, bilge uh, basement recreation space there, and the oldest fisherman gets to sit in the barber's chair. That's what they do <laughs> down to Cutler. Okay? But here's a fellow that came down, and, and here's how this goes. She says... Uh, not only do I come from a long lineage of lobstering, but I also played an active role in the fishing industry myself. At around the age of eight, I started painting my father's lobster buoys and helped him repair his traps. At the age of 10, I became, began working as a stern man on his boat. Day after day, summer after summer, I'd rise at 5 a.m. and spend my day on the ocean. 
stuffing bait bags and banding lobsters. Going stern man remained my summer job until I graduated from college. Through the years, I estimate I've easily spent 5,000 hours on a lobster boat. Here's the good part of the story now. Even after finishing university, it was my lobster fishing heritage that helped me secure my future career in advertising. Months of interviews and a summa cum laude degree from Colby College didn't seem to be enough to help me land a position as an account executive at any of the leading ad firms. It was only after a serendipitous meeting between my father and a visitor to Cutler Harbor that the doors started opening. As the story goes, a man had navigated his pleasure craft into our modest harbor in search of someone to fix his problematic engine. The visitor was eventually referred to my father, who, in addition to lobster fishing, is also a skilled engineer. After fixing his engine, my father and the man engaged in a lengthy conversation, which eventually led to stories of my lobster fishing past and my present hopes to work in advertising. At the time, my father had no idea who that man was. As it turns out, the man was chairman and CEO of one of the world's leading advertising agencies. Needless to say, next week I had a job. And from the biography at the end here, uh, it says after college, Christina began a career in advertising, working in San Francisco and New York before moving to London, where she met and married her husband, Anthony. She and Anthony continued to live in London, where they raised their daughter, Anya. And... Uh, she blogs about this, too, and I'm sorry I don't have the website on that. Well, we, we really need to move on to Windward Passage. We have Hattie on the phone already. Excellent. <laughs> He's impatient. Yeah, sorry to go on about the lobsters, but we, we had to get it in this morning. How to catch a lobster in Down East Maine. Anyway, have at it. Oh, well, Pam Scott, uh, you are the uh, prime motivator, we'll call it, of Windward Passage. Is that right? Yeah, um, I guess my title is program director but uh it's all behind the scenes we're all volunteer and i guess i'm you know the main grunt so, <laughs> <to speak. laughs> so why don't you briefly just explain what wintered passage is and how it started out right. well this is actually our 11th year with the program um i'll spare you the long history because it kind of morphed and developed as it went along uh but we started out putting uh 14 to 18 year olds on board the boat for four days and three nights and um i ran a chowder fest for 11 years and that provided the seed money and was sufficient to support the program at that point. Um, so we used the Bowden, but the boat, the program really didn't grow because the Bowden was only available to us on a short um, mm -hmm. time frame. And some years we had one trip, some years we had two. And one year she was dry docked the whole summer, so we didn't have her at all. So um, we just kind of went along that way. Well. The Bowdoin was finally being used by the academy to train their own students uh, when they started their um, their program for small vessel operations. And she wasn't going to be available to us anymore. So we were a program without a boat. Well, in the meantime, Havila Hawkins, who designed and built Vela, had taken her to um, Martha's Vineyard for 11 years where he and his family grew up on board and they did day charters and after 11 years they decided they would return to their home in Sedgwick and so they came back to Sedgwick and he had visions he and his wife Beverly had visions of doing a program very similar to what we were doing but 
we were a program without a boat and he was a boat without a program and so um two of our board members matt murphy and aaron porter uh called me one day and said we have got the boat for Wimber Passage and put me together with Havila. And we got together that winter, discussed it, and said, okay, we're going to give this a try. And here we are five years later, and we are running eight weeks every summer. That's five great. days and five nights each trip. And so that's kind of a very short history. Uh, what we do, we take Havila, I should say, takes kids 12 to 18 out for five days and five nights on board Vela and they crew. Uh, they are not allowed to bring cell phones, iPods, no personal electronics at all. They're totally unplugged. And there's a very good reason for that because it's all about teamwork and responsibility and working together. And if children, teens, I should say, are texting their friends back home or listening to their music. They're not connected to their crew base. They're not involved. Um, and they get over it in about 24 hours. <laughs> it takes about that long. Uh, and But the kids crew, they do all the work. They prepare the meals. They do the dishes. They swab the decks. They tend the sheets, um, steer the boat, help navigate. And whatever needs to be done on a boat, they do. And they also go and visit all these wonderful islands um, in Penobscot, Jericho, Frenchman Bay. And they row and they swim and they hike and explore. So it's about as magical of an experience as it can possibly be. Uh, The kids have a wonderful, wonderful time. But at the same time, you see over and over again that it can be a life-changing mm-hmm. experience for them. That's, that's things, the important thing. Things that they have never done before. So how are these children selected? Actually, it's pretty much a first-come, first-serve. Mm. Um, and we do have scholarships available uh, for part of the um, kids that go. Unfortunately, we're not well-funded, so we can't provide scholarships for everyone. Um, The full fee for the week is only $700, and that's all-inclusive, which by summer camp standards is more than reasonable. You can't rent the kid a motel room for $700 for the week. No, you can't, absolutely. uh, But we do offer... um, half scholarships, and in some cases, full scholarships. The whole idea is to make this available to all kids, not just those children whose families can afford to send them to camps and have activities like this. Um, And we have kids come on board that they're from all over Maine. Uh, At this point, I think we've represented uh, over 100 communities in Maine. Some of them have never seen salt water, Hmm. have never been on a boat. Um, it's hard to imagine a child growing up in Maine has never seen the ocean. Um, so it's really quite a life-changing experience in, in that way. Um, and there's a mixture of kids on the boats. They come on board. They don't know each other. Oh, by the way, it is co-ed. The kids don't know each other. We don't allow more than two children at a time who do know each other to come on board. Um but for the most part, they're strangers. And the very first day they show up and 
there's about five feet between each one of them and they're just checking each other <laughs> out out the corner of their eyes and um because they they do not know each other they've never had any contact with each other well by the time they get off the boat at the end of the five days they're basically joined at the hip they are best friends and hugging and they have nicknames for each other and often they stay in contact with each other by emails and a lot of the kids want to come back together the following year and we do have a lot of repeaters uh, kids that do come on year <clears throat> after year until they literally age out of the program yeah. which is 18. but they're having an experience that they never get anywhere else that's true uh, it's going to stay with them for a long long time these young people are our future sailors our future boat owners our future boat repairers whatever connected with the waterfront and i think it's an outstanding program when children need good wholesome responsible programs and I, th I think it's extremely important, and I think it's important to try to help it financially. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing that, uh, is our, that is one of our big issues. But. We're doing Boat Talk this morning on the community radio, and uh, it is the fundraising edition. You can uh, give a call to pledge this morning at 1-800, which, uh, which six, number? 643-6273. Thank you, Alan. pledge number. Uh, I also want to mention, though, that uh, we're talking about Captain Havel Hawkins and the vessel Vila, and I can hear him in the background. He's uh, We ought to bring him into the conversation. Are you there, Havel? Yeah, I am. Good morning, Captain. How are you this morning? Where Where's Vila at? i got to apologize for the noise. I got a little C, a little higher than I expected it. <laughs> hey, we I'm like that sloshing up, back I'm around. standing up to my knees in water, surrounded by little minnows and bright sunshine and kids. Not, not really half bad. Uh, Havla, you're not on deck standing up to your knees, are you? No, no, that would be bad. <laughs> I had to this, ask. Is, this is on the beach, but you know, you're talking about I get to do the lucky part. I'm the one who gets to hang out in all this beautiful scenery with these kids and, and, and do the fun part. But I was walking over here this morning. Uh, we're actually, I didn't mention where we are. We're on uh, Marshall Island, which is one of the most beautiful spots on this coast. It's part of the Main Coast Heritage Trust. So here we are at a kind of harmonic convergence with the Main Coast Heritage Trust and the beautiful spot and the Windward Passage, which is a beautiful program. and. WERU, which is a beautiful bunch of programs, and it's all kind of cool the way it all works together. Most of them, all three of them, are mostly volunteer, which is kind of a kind of a neat thing. Havla, are you at the Sand Beach on Marshall? Yeah, we are. Uh, yep. We ought, we well, ought to explain. Not long enough for me to go all the way in yet. Right. We <laughs> ought to ex we ought to explain Marshall Island though. It's it's kind of a special spot, and that little bit of Sand Beach is uh, pretty rare down east here. And it is on the outside of Marshall Island, on the seaward side. It's not the most secure anchorage, but it is a very special spot. Yeah, we don't anchor. I anchor here once in a while, but for the most part, I try to anchor behind Ringtown, and they've got a float access over there. But I find that to anchor over there and actually hike the, what is it, mile and a half, two miles through the woods to get here is a better experience than just driving up in the boat and coming ashore in the boat. It's more... There's more anticipation. They have to work harder to get here. When they see it, they see other little, you know, these big cobble beaches and stuff. But when they get to the sand beach, it makes it kind of special to them. 
have walked over here instead of just drive up to it. We're oftentimes here with, you know, there'd be three or four big outboards or something show up and they all pile ashore and do the same thing. But I think the, uh, the working for it a little bit by walking here through this absolutely stunning island is, is worth the, that's what this experience is all about. Make it a little bit harder to get there. It is one of the classic, uh, is my favorite beach on the uh, coast of Maine, and, and you're right, getting there is, is a part of the joy of it. Bring me a surf easy. clam. Okay. <laughs> I can do. And my, this is one of my favorite. My other really favorite beach is the one over by uh, uh, Frenchboro, Long Island, between there and Rich's Head. There's a stack of big round boulders that have been put up there in, by the millennium, and it's just one of the most stunning places going there's two places on earth that I really felt the passage of time. That's one, and one was in the Grand Canyon. But showing these kids this stuff and explaining it all to them and kind of looking it over and just notice it is pretty cool. They're all standing in a big heap here now with their feet in the warm part of the beach, but I had to come out here where it's cold to get reception. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> one other thing if you see captain clarence howard out there today will you say hello i'll do that yeah <laughs> no, i haven't seen anybody yet which <laughs> is kind of the way we like it yeah so how are the kids doing this week kids are doing fine we've got a really neat bunch of kids we've got a girl from france we've got a girl from munson maine uh we've got two kids from the i think they're summer types from casting uh, yep. I can't, and that's about about as close as I can come to explain who actually works. <laughs> I, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about where or who the kids are. I I try to try to handle all these kids as individuals when they show up, without really worrying about too much what their background is or who they are or what they're doing. We sort of take everybody on a on a first name, start from scratch basis, which kind of levels the playing field for everybody some of the kids that we get are from pretty hard situations other ones are from very good situations but i find that they're both in need of what we have whatever that is <laughs> how many days out are you now have a... uh, we left yesterday, yesterday okay so they're just starting they're just starting to get warmed up then huh yeah they're pretty well warmed up this is a Last night, they had an hour and a half or so of ghost stories in the after part of the vessel, which was pretty cool. That hasn't happened before. <laughs> you never know. Some we, some groups will warm right up. These guys were cohesive as soon as we left the dock. So it's been pretty I was I was lucky enough to uh, get to visit uh, with Vila a little while ago down in Castine, and uh, you were uh, had some kids aboard there, and we're getting ready for the uh, classic yacht race the next day uh down to camden and stuff um i'd have to say those kids uh, uh first thing i'd say is is uh it's a unique vessel vila is a very unique vessel uh Havla designed and built it it is uh very well done and very traditional um and sails beautifully and sails beautifully i hear but it is not what you call a high-tech vessel for instance it's not a winch aboard, <laughs> not a winch aboard the, the boat in a lot of places where on a modern sailing vessel, you'd have like a $100 Harkin, uh, very low uh, friction uh, block, a, a pulley, you know. Uh, Havla has uh, the line going through two pieces of wood, you know, and it works just fine. And the kids get to pull on that. Uh, talk to a kid from Peaks Island uh, 
who was on the trip and he knows boats he knows he knows the co- but he'd never seen the coast of maine like that and it kind of blew his mind i thought that was pretty cool um Havila, do we have a kid there we can talk to this morning oh geez they're quite a ways away i don't know if i get there without well you. we, we uh, don't have to worry about that yeah i think they're sort of all i don't know that they've really been here long enough to know <laughs> i can uh try and get somebody but like i say i'm i'm Damn near waist deep in the water trying to keep Well, you, you can maintain right where you are there, Captain. Uh, last okay. time, when I was aboard there, uh, there was one of your uh, 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 kids there was picking away on a small guitar. How do they entertain themselves? Books, I'm hoping. Uh. Yeah, yeah. One kid read three or four books last year. He started the Sharp series and fell in love with that. So he did three or four books last They do that. They spend a lot of time talking to each other. We do a lot of card playing. Rummy seems to be the vessels game of choice um it's funny this is not necessarily it's awful easy to make this into some sort of sailing thing where the sail training and i don't really like that word i there's a couple of ways of looking at this or even looking at sailing you know sailing as an end to itself or sailing as a means to an end and i think that we're in the sailing as a means to an end situation where they don't really spend a lot of time navigation and stuff like that, but they do spend a lot of time learning how to navigate relationships with each other. And I think that's probably every bit as important as the sailing part. If they decide that they're going to like sailing, then that's cool. Uh, So we're not really pressuring them to do any sailing whatsoever other than to be available to handle lines and and handle vessels. But for the most part, what we're really trying to accomplish is how to get them to operate with each other without shouting over the next person we're all very close so we don't have to holler and if somebody makes more noise than they're supposed to they usually get slowed down by me (laughs) or something (laughs) it's all about respect trying to respect each other the boat and the coast and Mm -hmm. it's a full-time job just trying to make that happen if they become social animals among themselves that works for me and 99 times out of 100 there are Uh, very seldom though i have a, a real bad egg that has to be stepped on in any way but, uh, sometimes yeah well have you uh you're starting out what we, we called them children here but actually i would call them young adults but they may be children when they first come on board but i think in those five days they do an awful lot of growing up so that i wouldn't call them children when i when they leave yeah no they're all kids and i call myself a kid anything anybody up to about 65 70 is a kid as far as I'm <laughs> My grand, one of my grandfather's favorite sayings, uh, Frank Day, was there is no second childhood when a man remains a boy. And that's one of the hardest lessons to learn growing up. And the other one that I like is trying to remember that this all is a journey, not a destination. And I think that uh, one of the kids was asking me, how much further to the beach? I said, why don't we just enjoy the walk? It'll show up eventually. Yeah. And it's not, <laughs> you know, it's kind of not something everybody can do is enjoy each day as it goes by instead of constantly worrying about what's happening next and that's true with these kids they uh i don't allow them to ask me where we're going when they go on the boat we're already there that is it we are you are here now <laughs> and enjoy that part i don't know where the boat's going but you're right here so and i honestly know i can't i can say that truthfully i don't have to lie i don't always know where we're going it depends entirely on what the weather's doing Excellent philosophy, Captain. 
You mentioned so that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> you mentioned your grandfather Frank Day, and uh, I guess your father Havilah Hawkins Senior would be in there too. Uh, you grew up around uh, schooners and and people um, using the boats to make their living, and uh, and again a uh, extended uh, boyhood kind of way of of uh, you know working for a living. Uh, right. Like I say, that that's the history of your family, isn't it? Right. Well, I think it's important. I wanted the same thing with my kids. I mean, we did the day sailing thing, but they understood that this boat was not a luxury. It was a privilege to have it, and we had to work hard to keep it. And I feel the same way, and I try to instill that into these guys. This is not a yachting vacation. This is a this is a working vessel that earns her living. And uh, as such, she has to be treated with a certain amount of respect. You want to mention the captain and the crew and everybody else. You want to mention a couple of the uh, older vessels in your past there, uh, starting uh, oh, with Mary Day, maybe? Almost every vessel in the fleet. The Stephen Tabor, the Alice Wentworth, she's gone now, but the Richard Robbins, the, like I say, most of the other vessels in the fleet. The Mary Day, my father designed and had her built at the Gamage Yard in 62. Um, it just goes on and on. Did a lot of deliveries and commercial fishing offshore. I've sort of done done a lot of it. But I was real happy with the bigger, older, traditional vessels and what I refer to affectionately as the trailing-edge technology. <laughs> There's so much out there that we're forgetting how to do and why to do that uh, I had to build this vessel to sort of keep it going, prove that it could be done in a, I hate to say, yachting context, but in a context that's smaller than the commercial stuff. So much of what happens... So much of what we learned years ago on the water and how to handle a vessel and simply is sort of going away for the sake of speed and luxury. And I saw a quote the other day that somebody mentioned it was too bad to sacrifice all of the comfort for luxury. <laughs> we got lots of comfort, no luxury. It's kind of cool. Havla, this is uh, the last trip for Windward Passage this season? Yeah. Yep, I'm all done here with this Windward Passage thing, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it's a long summer. Eight weeks is usually about enough. We could do a couple more probably, but uh, I've got two weeks with Wooden Boat Magazine doing a wholesale thing with grown-ups. And that's probably about it for me for the summer. For Vela. Available, I could do, you know, I've got a couple weeks before that starts, and we're talking about doing some stuff on the shoulder seasons, but uh, we're pretty comfortable with what we do here right now. Besides the boat, you've uh, got to be a good down easter and have you got to have a couple irons in the fire. Uh, just for instance, I just added some reefing blocks to a boom that you built for uh, the New York 32 Falcon. Um, very nicely done, Captain. That was a nice piece of uh, spruce that you glued up there. Um, so you also do uh, projects on the side. Well, you know, how do you how do you make your living besides Vila is what I'm asking here. Oh, well, I, yeah, last winter I did a bunch of stuff. I worked at Benjamin River Marine for a couple of projects, and I went over to do the job for Bob and Pam, and then I did uh, back at Brooklyn Boatyard for an off-season, spent a lot of time varnishing and painting 12 and a half and stuff. And then the year before that, I drove a tractor-trailer rig over the road for about 3,000 miles a week for nine months. That was that was an interesting winter, but it's a little bit too much being gone. Between that and the sailing, I don't get to see much of my wife. So I'm trying to stay, trying to stay home a little more. So we do whatever comes along, just like everybody else around here. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very thank much, Havilah. Yeah, thank been, you. Been good talking to you. We need yeah, to well, I appreciate you guys, uh, what you do, and uh, we appreciate what ERU does. Don't forget to call in and give them some money. 
Um, we actually carried one of um, we we donated a week last year during the um, what do they call it the auction that goes on, and there was a girl whose grandfather bought that for her, and she went with us last week. Nice. So that was, oh, that yeah. was really cool. She had spent the week before, or a couple of weeks before, hiking the Appalachian Trail for a hundred miles, and she was actually in tears when she left. I don't want to leave. I've been enough camp, but when she left, she was having a ball. So huh. I guess that works. That's I bet. I bet the boat, the boat, being a hiker in a boat, or uh, I bet the boat would compare very well after the hike. <laughs> I would yeah, think. Yeah, a lot of just a little more sitting around, a little less activity. But she was. She didn't have a problem with her little hike, that's for sure. Better, better bunkage and uh, and better uh, galley facilities too. I would yeah, say about the boat. That, yeah, yeah, we're pretty comfortable. I'd say uh, okay, I, gentlemen. Thank you, thank, thank you, you so much. much. Captain Havlaw Hawkins calling from Marshall Island. Marshall Island is uh, outside of Ho, and they're on the outside of Marshall Island at the Sand Cove. Uh, beach there this morning, and I'm telling you, it's a special place that ain't easy to get to, and and ain't they some lucky, and we're some lucky to be talking to them and just imagining it this morning. Yes. I'd like to um, say thank you to Sid in Appleton who called up during Boat Talk and renewed his membership. Thank you very much, Sid. Sid called 1-800-643-6273 to make a pledge to WERU. Yeah, if you want to support this sort of thing, just imagine that there is this sort of thing. It's kind of a cool... Uh, you know, we've been doing Boat Talk, what, a dozen, 14 years now, Alan? Yeah. I guess I think, so. And, I think we're and, working on 14. Yeah, we didn't start Boat Talk originally. Uh, Kathy Melio had, I uh, believe, the original idea and got called over to some people uh, she knew in Brooklyn, uh, Paul Brayton, uh, people over to Wooden Boat Magazine, and Joel White and Maynard Bray were the first uh, hosts of Boat Talk. And they did it uh, sporadically over the years. And you and I had, had uh, filled in and done it a time or two. And then they came to us uh, one spring and says, why don't you guys do the Boat Talk show? And we thought that was a one-time gig. And I guess it went pretty good that one time. And here we are. So, <laughs> Well, we'll be getting back to Pam in just a minute. We're going to take a left turn right now, though, and talk with Russell Ray, who lives down in Hancock, I believe, and who is uh, concerned about the uh, Navy's sonar testing. Good morning, Russell. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. Why don't you uh, go ahead and explain what the uh, Navy has uh, just reapplied for? Okay. Um, <clears throat> they've actually reapplied for several things. One is um, for their training and testing activities in the Atlantic and Gulf of Mexico, and another is for their those activities in the uh, off of California and Hawaii. And both of them are. Um, <laughs> Both of them are going to be horrible for the environment because, um, uh, and it's and when people think of of military sonar, it's oftentimes associated with marine mammals. But it's not just the marine mammals who are going to be impacted. It's going to affect. I mean, if you think about it, um, many species of marine life they they use sound and they depend on sound, and this. Sonar is is very loud, it's very intense, and it travels for great distances sometimes, depending on the on the um, conditions and on um, the type of sonar that's used. But it can travel far distance and therefore impact a lot of creatures. And so it's it's going to be um, you know we're very concerned about it because the Navy it's the Navy has actually taken a shift in their in how they're doing their evaluations. Um, for years, they've been um, uh, 
doing various uh, environmental impact statements as they're required to do on different uh, sonar activities. And they've, they've been very, very heavily criticized by the scientific com- community and, and others because um, they're, they've always way understated the impacts. And they're actually starting to change that a little, although we, we fully believe that they're still understating them. But, um, for example, uh, just on, on the Atlantic and uh, Gulf training and testing, um, I'm just going to throw out a few figures just to give some, in, some idea of the scale because it's, it's huge. Um, they are going to be taking, over a five-year period, they're going to be taking, which is uh, behavioral impacts, harassment, and injury and death. That's called a take. And they're going to be taking 19 million takes in that five-year period, which include um, 2.25 million uh, instances of temporary hearing loss, over 10,000 instances of permanent hearing loss, um, almost 6,000 lung injuries, and over 800 deaths of marine mammals. And that includes um, 90 uh, temporary hearing loss incidents for right whales per year. That's a very serious thing. Um, you know, when a, when, a, when a marine mammal or other marine species can't hear and, and sound is important to them, it really affects their ability to survive. It affects their ability to find mates, to, to detect predators, to, to detect uh, oncoming ships that might hit them, and other things. So it's a very serious thing. So, Russell, um, if somebody were concerned and would like to get more information from you, you uh, are the head of COAST, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you explain that? Well, um, we formed, um, I think it was in 2000 or 2001, um, not too long after a a well-known stranding incident that happened in the Bahamas, where a number of whales from different species, whales and dolphins from different species, stranded after a, a Navy exercise. And, um, and basically, we wanted to try to raise awareness of the issue in Maine. And, and we've, you know, we've done that through um, various ways, but, you know, and we've met with our congressional delegation and lobbied them. Um, we've written comments on, on EISs and uh, attended um, scoping meetings and such. And um, uh, I've written, I've written um, uh, like commentaries for newspapers. Um, and we've testified in front of a, a few committees, um, including the Federal Advisory Committee on Impacts on Marine Mammals from uh, Human-Made Sound. And um, currently we're, we're involved in a, actually it's been for the last few years, we've been um, one of the plaintiffs in a lawsuit against the Navy and, and NIMS. Um, over their undersea warfare training range that they want to build, which is another whole. That's actually not even included in, in this current uh, Atlantic Fleet training and testing proposal. But um, it's another whole awful thing <laughs> that the Navy wants to do, um, which is re- really very seriously going to jeopardize the uh, right whale's um, you know, chances of survival into the future. I mean, because they want to they create this range just offshore are the only known calving grounds for right whales. And, and this range, would be, it's a, like a 500 square mile instrumented range that they want to build. 
um, and they're going to carry out like 470 sonar exercises per year. And this is, um, you know, the sound will, will travel right into the calving grounds. In fact, uh, um, just uh, a year or two ago, when they were doing surveys for marine mammals for the um, uh, Navy, um, as they were you know, required to do for this project that they want to do, um, researchers actually saw a right whale giving birth very, you know, it was 40 miles offshore. And um, it was further out than generally they do. But um, it, if, if sonar exercises had been taking place in the range, in the proposed range, that, that mother, I don't know whether she would have been able to do that successfully, whether the calf would have survived. Why is it necessary at all? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it isn't. The, the, um, the, 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 the Navy chose this range out of the whole entire study area, the, the Atlantic Fleet study area, which is, you know, they could have chosen so many areas that would have been so much less harmful. But they, they really don't consider the environment. That's what it comes down to. In fact, they are, the, the alternatives, when, when they write an EIS, one of the requirements of writing an EIS is to discuss, investigate various alternatives that would um, have different consequences for the environment. And um, they totally failed to do that. They did have different alternatives, but it was only in terms of the environment didn't enter into those alternatives. Well, give me another basic clue. Why is it necessary to produce a signal? Oh, okay. Because I've um, done some of this work years ago in its infancy, and, um, you know, I, I was only supplying the vessel and and running that part of it, but uh, well, the the use of sonar is. I mean, the Navy uses it to detect, um, you know, submarines mostly. You can detect them without sonar. That's well, that's true. Mm. The Navy insists it needs it. Uh, really, the Navy has has been incredibly. Um, they, they will not give in at all. I mean, they could, they could even continue to do the sonar exercises, but just by taking a few measures, they could make it dramatically less costly to the environment. But they refuse to do it. I mean, one of the, one of the most effective means for mitigating environmental damage is geographical exclusion zones for biologically important areas. They, they will not do it. They, actually, they... I, they they did limit the use of some of their activities for certain right whale habitat and certain West Indian manatee habitat, but other than that, just and those are small areas. Other than that, I mean, they're going to be training and testing in right whale critical habitat. They're going to be setting off explosives in right whale critical habitat. I, I don't think it should be doing it at all. Yeah, well, I agree with you. Well, so, Russell, um, do you have? Is there a website for Coast? You know, we don't have one yet. Okay. Well, how about a phone number at least then? Yep. Yep. It's uh, my number is four two two eight two seven three, and my email is seven coast at roadrunner dot com. Seven as in the number. Number seven coast at roadrunner dot com. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Thing of it is, it's pretty common sense that. 
So many of these creatures depend on sound. Mm-hmm. And you destroy their ability. You know, it's That's not right. only whales; it's all the other creatures, and even seabirds that dive to pretty exactly. That's right. And the navy, you know. the, the navy is, um, is. I mean, the way the navy carries out its env- environmental impact statements is totally unlawful. I mean, they. <laughs> They violate it in so many ways, um, but uh, they they just they'll make claims like, well, it's it's not fully understood how birds use sound underwater, or if they even use it at all. Therefore, um, they don't. It won't be. They won't be impacted. As they're literally as absurd statements as that, and um, and they're you know they're <laughs> they're patently unlawful in those kind of statements. Russell, I would point out that the Navy uses sonar. They're mimicking nature. You know, they just happen to do it extraordinarily loudly, you know. And uh, the other thing is, um, underwater, out of sight, man, you know. Uh, Things can happen underwater that uh, just don't concern real people because nobody knows what happens underwater. And I guess what I would sort of ask is, do you think they have an advantage operating underwater that, say, analogously the Air Force wouldn't have in the air where we could all hear what was going on or see, you know? Exactly, yes, absolutely. I I fully believe that the strandings that have been associated with Navy sonar, and there are a number of them, a, a much, much larger number than the Navy will ever admit to. They admit to a few, but... They deny any any um, responsibility for most of them, and there are so many. But the fact of the matter is, is that most of the damage that they're doing, nobody knows about, really. Because when a whale dies at sea, or a fisher, you know, if their swim bladders are exploded, they 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 die, and they're probably eaten or whatever to decompose. People don't know about it, and unless whales strand. And then they, unless they have certain kinds of uh, injuries that raise alarms, um, no, you know, nobody's going to know. Right. Most, and, most... And, and then there's the other, the other, the, there's the direct effects. There's also the indirect effects. Like, if one of these right whales that is uh, get, experiences uh, temporary uh, hearing loss is swimming along after the exercises. And a ship is coming down, and they can't hear that ship, and that that whale gets hit by the ship. You know, that's that's an indirect death caused by the sonar, really. Yeah. Well, Russell, thank you very much. We've enjoyed talking thank to you. you. And well, thank we have, you. We have your contact information. We'll put it up on the Boat Talk website. Great, great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Russell. Now, we are running out of uh, time here on Boat Talk, and did we uh, give the contact information for Windward Passage, Pam Scott? Well, we do have a website, and it is www.windwardpassage.org, and we also have email. You can send us an email at info at windwardpassage.org, and I do want to put a little plug in. We are totally funded by donors who sponsor the kids to come on board. Because we are all volunteer, less than 4% of all monies that we generate 
are used for any type of administrative costs. And that's really primarily brochures, T-shirts for the kids, um, and uh, mi minor ex postage, uh, minor expenses. The rest of it goes directly to putting a kid on board. That's great. I mean, most nonprofits yeah. like to figure 15% for administrators, yeah. so yeah. You're, you're way ahead of the curve. That's yeah. great. I've been in Pam's office. Pam has a uh, is part of a company called Aerotropic, and uh, she does both things from the same chair and desk, and sometimes simultaneously, as far as I can tell. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you talk about keeping the overhead down. There's a good way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And good for you, Pam. Thank you for, you know, the effort that you put into it. Um, again, I was very impressed hanging out on Vila and uh, chatting up those kids and, and the first mate and uh, Captain yeah. Havel Hawkins. Um, yeah. Definitely a, a good place for any kid to be. I'd want to talk to them after a week of not having their electronics and ask, you know, how, how was that for you, youngster? Yeah. You'd be so you know, yeah. are, are you okay? Or, you know, uh, does it make you think anything different? I, Call I, us next weekend. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I met I met one grandparent that uh, brought his, his grandson just to get him away from electronics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's more that than one of too. those. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very common. Yeah. Well, another hour has just sailed by. It's always great fun doing boat talk. Time to make room for Rich Hillsinger coming up here next with On the Wing on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill. Thanks to Amy, Amy Mann down in the engine room. This is Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce. Talk to you later.